You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. Lee Child got fired from his job. His job became, as they say, redundant in his industry, the television industry. And he said to himself, what am I going to do with my life? And like many people, he said, well, I'll write a book. Many people do it, I'll do it. Of course, many people fail at it. Lee Child didn't fail at it. He wrote the first Jack Reacher novel. Uh, Jack Reacher is the hero of Killing Floor, that first novel, and then the next 28 novels after that, plus a movie starring Tom Cruise, plus a TV series that my entire family watches all the time. So, and hundreds of millions of copies of the Jack Reacher books have been sold. Now there's a new Jack Reacher novel, The Secret, just came out, and Lee Child wrote it with his younger brother, Andrew Child, who henceforth is going to be the writer of the Jack Reacher series. It was. It's a great honor to have them on the podcast. And these podcasts are always self-help for me. I want to learn how to write a thriller novel. Now I get the best thriller writers on the planet to come on. And here's Lee Child and Andrew Child. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Thank you guys for coming on the podcast. And I'm a huge fan of Jack Reacher and, and, and the work both of you do. And I guess I would love an origin story. And I know that's like the cliche question. I almost hate asking that because I'm sure you've answered that a gazillion times. But, you know, everybody out there would love to know how Jack Reacher started, how you got into writing Lee. And then, of course, Andrew as well. You've been a thriller writer, and now you're you're on the Jack Reacher series. So what's how did you guys start writing? 
I mean, for me personally, it was, you get asked the question, how long have you known you wanted to be a writer? When did you first want to be a writer? And some writers answer, you know, they were seven years old and they were writing four-page novels in composition books and they're still in the bottom drawer and all that kind of thing. And my friend Harlan Coben has a riff about how he wanted to be a writer ever since he was a fetus and all of this kind of thing. Uh, but the truth for me is I never wanted to be a writer. Uh, all I wanted to be was an entertainer. Uh, for me, at my age, plan A was to join the Beatles. And um, I thought that was a really sound plan, except for two things. Number one, they had no vacancies. Number two, I had no musical talent. Number three, I guess, uh, I was only nine years old. But <laughs> I loved, I loved, loved that proposition of doing something that made people intensely happy. I just saw the look in the audience's eye. They loved it. And I wanted to do something that people would love. So entertainment was the thing for me. And I started in the theater briefly and then television. And then I lost my job in television, not due to any felony or misdemeanor on my part, but just that kind of corporate restructuring that everybody ran through in the 1990s. Uh, I was 39 years old. I was an expensive veteran with a big salary and a great deal and uh, benefits and pension and all that kind of thing. And they got, just got rid of us all. Did you resent that? Oh, boy, yes, I did. I mean, absolutely. Um, not just for me, uh, but for everybody. You know, it was a magnificent organization I was working for that had taken two generations to build up, and it was just being trashed in that stupid way that things were in the 90s. So, yeah, I was intensely resentful, and that shows up later, I think, because... The main problem was I'd also been the shop steward for our union for the last couple of years, which I was blacklisted. I was never going to get another job in the business. So the question was, what next? What can I do? And basically, it came down to nothing. I was incredibly hyper-trained for the one job that I'd just been kicked out of. And so what next? So I took a step back and I said, fundamentally, what is it that you can do? And fundamentally, I know what people want. I know what they enjoy. I know what they like. I know what they respond to. And so it was a question of, all right, what else can I do that will utilize those perceptions? And I thought, you know what? I'll write a book. I've read some. How hard can it be? Well, it doesn't see well... It's uh, first off, I love the idea of viewing a writer as an entertainer because it really is. You, it's the same thing as I don't want to say it's the same thing as the Beatles because obviously it's very different and, it, and it's not the same thing as uh, I don't know being a, a comedian, for instance, where you're directly performing in front of an audience. But you are in some sense. Like you have to basically gauge an audience's reaction to something that you make up out of your mind and make sure it occupies their time long enough that they don't get distracted. Exactly right, yeah. I mean, it's not the same as the Beatles, but it kind of is in a way. We, we swim in this current of all kinds of different media, television, movies, books, music, podcasts, comedians, as you say. Um, and we're all kind of different, but the same. Uh, the proposition is give people a good time even if it's a few hours or a couple of days, just give them a good time. Yeah, and so, and so but at, at the same time, the hero, Jack Reacher, this, this, this hero that has captivated, you know, tens of millions of people is very different from Brideshead Revisited, for instance. So, like, how did you, why did you decide, okay, this is going to be, this is going to be the, 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 the character I place my bet on, my, I place my career on? Part of it was instinctive and part of it was a tiny bit calculated that I looked around at what everybody else was doing with strong, character-driven series. And they were all doing what you might call a soap opera. And I got, you know, that's not a term of denigration to me at all. Soap opera is incredibly powerful narrative medium and it put food on my table for a long, long time. Soap opera is great. 
But everybody was doing it. So my idea was to do something different. Don't do what everybody else is doing. So I wanted an anti-soap opera, where there are no continuing characters, there is no community, it is not set in a workplace or a neighborhood, uh, nobody has a dog, nobody has a favorite restaurant, all that kind of thing. I didn't want that. I wanted a, a lone character, thoroughly alienated from society, just wandering on his own to exploit a, a gigantic geography. So it really came down to what would be a plausible background for a character like that? I mean, most kind of rambling, wandering people are to some extent mentally ill, and I didn't want to do that. So who else does that kind of thing? And I found anecdotally the biggest source of alienation really is people that were in the military, man and boy, and are now no longer in the military. They're in the civilian universe and they don't understand it. They don't appreciate it. It's, it, it they're a fish out of water. So, that, so that's the route that I took. But, you know, it seems like it stumbled upon this neat, this fantasy that everyone has. Like, can I just stand up and walk away from, you know, these hard responsibilities, the mortgage payments, the, the nine to five job, the whatever, and just live on my own terms? It kind of, you know, whether accidentally or intentionally, you slipped into like the, probably the biggest escapist fantasy that, that people, I would say even particularly men, but perhaps men and women that people have. Yeah, well, you know, Andrew should really answer this because it's never up to the writer. Because he did run away from everything. And <laughs> it's, it's not up to the writer to, uh, to dictate to the reader what they're going to enjoy. That never works. You've just got to put something down and hope the reader enjoys it. And Andrew was the first ever reader because, uh, you know, I needed to know that I wasn't wasting my time. And so Andrew is the only person... That I, that I was close to who would A, give me an honest judgment, and B, was experienced with this kind of genre. He knows about this. So I sent him the manuscript when it was still in pencil. And this is Killing Floor. Yep, this is Killing Floor, still in pencil. And I was really, really depending on his reaction to know, is it worth carrying on or not? So the first impressions of the character are really a readers, not the writers. And Andrew was the first reader, so he should say what what it was he found appealing. Yeah, and I mean, I remember that so well. You know, when when Lee sent me the, the that first draft, because the tables were sort of turned at that point, because I had a great job with a you know with a great salary and all the benefits that he was talking about before, and he was out of work, and I knew he had a mortgage, he had a family, and so. I knew that writing these books was his plan to put food on the table and keep a roof over their head. So when I set out to read the book, I was terrified because I was thinking, what if it's no good? What if I'm going to be the one who has to call him up and say, sorry, you know, get ready for, uh, you know, being homeless and starving, you know? Or am I going to have to let him live in my spare room? What's going to happen? So I remember picking up that, that manuscript and reading it. It was the most nerve-wracking thing. And of course, I needn't have worried because it was a fantastic book and it laid the foundations for, for everything that followed. But one thing did you I have remember... Any, did, I'm just curious, did you have any criticism or constructive criticism at all that you uh, handed over to, to Lee? Well, I don't know if it was constructive criticism. There was one kind of one thing that popped up into my head, which was um, that he had his brother killed in the book. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm reading this manuscript and I get to the bit about the brother being brutally murdered. And I'm thinking, you know, is there any kind of Freudian aspect to this that I need to be aware of? But, well, it's an uh, older brother, so you're, you could justify it that way. It's an older brother. He didn't want is. an older brother. He was happy with the younger brother. Exactly. That's true. I, that was the only consolation. But um, one thing that I remember also clearly was, you know, the way that that book is constructed, it's first person narrative. So you're seeing everything through Reacher's point of view. But he gets arrested in the diner, he gets dragged off to the police station, he gets questioned. And he has this thing where he's not 
he refuses to respond. So it's a long, long time before you find out his name. And I remember very clearly that feeling of, I don't know this character's name, but I know this character. And I think that is something that really um, helps the readers bond with Reacher because there's something about Reacher's experience. You know, he's being, he's having a terrible day. We've all had terrible days. He's being picked on by the, the authorities, you know, whether that be your boss or the police or, you know, your landlord or somebody everybody's had that experience of being unfairly picked on by an outsider and so here is Reacher sharing those experiences but what he can do that every, all of us can't is he can do something about it he can fight back he can refuse to answer the police's questions he can escape he can beat up the bad guys he can figure out the puzzles so it's a perfect combination of everything that we all experience in our lives but are frustrated so we recognize it we um, bond with it but we can't do anything whereas reacher can so that's where you kind of bridge between recognizable everyday experiences and that kind of wish fulfillment escapism that is so powerful and so attractive and again the the lack of well, the lack of attachment and the lack of rules, those two things, but with a strong ethical backbone. And so these aspects, again, is this almost like you say, wish fulfillment, where there's, there's, there's this idea of freedom. Jack Reacher is first and foremost free. He can, he's free to pursue justice. He's free to move to the next town. He's, he's free. He, he doesn't have to get social media followers. He's not a, he's not a digital guy. So, uh, you know, there's, there's, I think that's a big fantasy for many people, including myself. I think so. And I think the way that everyday life has developed, you know, life in the 20th century when Richard started, 21st century now, it's, it's all about accumulating things, which in some ways make your life easier. You know, your car is easier to drive than walking to town. You know, a dishwasher is easier than washing dishes by hand. But at the same time, all of these things that are supposed to be extra convenient, they kind of accumulate and then end up weighing you down because what are you going to do when the car needs new tires? What are you going to do when the dishwasher is broken down. It's just all of these extra things which occupy space in your head more than anything else. And I think a lot of people share that experience of almost feeling suffocated or feeling weighed down by just the, the accoutrement of everyday life, just all the, all the stuff that we have and we have to think about and we have to maintain and we have to pay for. So I think the idea that you could just walk away from all of that, you know, different, part, different periods in different people's lives, it's going to feel more attractive at some points than others but that idea that you could just walk away you would be burden free you'd feel like you could walk on air I think if you could really do that yes it's totally true Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I of course the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, 
than you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side-by-side side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours, and they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Andrew, since you're now taking over the helm of the the Jack Reacher series, do you see it ever moving in a slightly different direction where there might be something consistent from book to book, like a girlfriend or a home base or or a dog? I mean, Jack Reacher loves animals, loves dogs. Well, I think the key to answering that question is something that Lee said earlier, which is about trying to understand what your audience wants. And so, you know, I've been part of that audience for more than 25 years. And I've been to all kinds of events, you know, before COVID, when book when books came out, you'd have the in-person events, you'd have the tours to all the bookstores and all the libraries and everything. I would go to as many of those as I could. And um, a bit like I used to do in my theater days, you know, if you want to know whether a play is any good, you don't read the reviews, you stand in the foyer at the end and listen to people as they're leaving. And that's what I would do. I'd be in the audience and I would hear what people were saying. So we've got a good sense of what people want. And I think that people don't want Reacher to change. You know, our father was from Ireland, so he could get away with this. He used to have this expression, the same, only different. And that's what we aim for. You know, we want Reacher to have all of those consistent characteristics that people love. Um, we don't want those to change, but of course we do want the books to be to feel fresh and feel new. So we want him in different scenarios, we want him facing different kinds of villains, we want him solving new kinds of puzzles, but we don't want to take away any of those comfortable, satisfying, welcoming aspects that people over the years have come to love and have come to look forward to. You know, 
if you think about like, let's say in the decades before Reacher, uh, you have like, I'll, I'll just name some classic series that revolve around a single hero. Like the most classic being like James Bond, or then you get to like, you know, uh, like Jack Ryan type of, of heroes. These are heroes that they're sort of anti-authority, but they work for authority and they can't really express as much as perhaps they would like their anti-authority aspects. Do you think that's what kind of um, breaks Reacher out compared to like these older heroes? I think that, yeah, you you know, you say go back decades. I mean, really, it goes back hundreds of years, if not millennia, the, the idea of the knight errant. And somebody like James Bond is kind of half in and half out of the establishment. Uh, he's a commander in the Royal Navy. He's employed by the security services. He, he's part of a structure, and yet he's somewhat disapproved of. He's somewhat people are suspicious of him you know the boss is always chafing at, at the things he gets up to so he's got one foot in and one foot out which is part of the um knight errant thing a knight errant is a knight you know sir lancelot or whoever who then for some reason gets banished he's banished from the court and sentenced to wander the land and do good deeds and the same myth occurs practically everywhere. You know, it's the Ronin myth in Japan, the samurai that is disowned by his master and banished. And so there, there has to be two things. Number one, a sense of previous status. And Richard has that because he was a West Point graduate and a major in the U.S. Army. So his status is there. And the banishment is not that he's been shoved out because of a transgression necessarily, but just that the army got smaller uh, after the end of the Cold War and he was one of the ones kicked out. So that he has been banished in a way. So he has this previous nobility, now he's banished. And that is, I think, the key aspect of this character that goes back literally hundreds of years. You know, it's a Western concept in the US. It's medieval in Europe. It's Scandinavian sagas, Greek tragedies. This character has always been around. And so you got to ask yourself, why? Why has this character been reinvented over and over again over thousands of years? You know, Robin Hood, all of these characters are really the same guy. And the answer is because we want that guy. We would love to have a guy like that just show up and solve our problems. Because everybody has a problem. Might be trivial, might be super serious, but everybody's got a problem. And wouldn't it be great if there was a knock on the door and this big, huge, silent man showed up to fix your problem and then left afterward? That is the again, a super part of the key. He's got to leave afterward. He can't hang around and have all kinds of gratitude issues. He just shows up, solves a problem, and rides off into the sunset. It's a perpetual fantasy that we all want. Yeah, and I think there's another key difference with a character like James Bond because, you know, as Lee said, he's half in and half out. And the, half, the foot that he's got in the establishment... Bond, you've got to think about when he was written and what extra role he was playing. So, you know, Bond was, was conceived at the end of the 50s into the 60s in England. And England at that time was a grey, depressed, dour, bankrupt place where mm. um, people, out of, you know, they, they struggled. They had miserable lives. And as, on top of that, the country was coming to trying to come to terms with the fact it was its place at the top table had been lost, bankrupt after the Second World War, no longer the key player it used to be. So people were struggling with these two issues. So along comes this character Bond, who has this this extravagant lifestyle. He goes to casinos, he drives Bentleys in the in the books. He goes to Nassau. He goes, you know, he has he he gives people a take. It's a different kind of escapism. He gives them a glimpse into another world. And on top of that, he kind of carries this extra baggage for the country because you know, there's this enormous international problem. The CIA can't solve it. The KGB can't solve it. So what do they do? They come to Bond to take care of it, you know, which is obviously ridiculous. But people loved it because it gave, you know, he would, but so the point I'm trying to make is that 
Bond was carrying all of this additional baggage on a kind of national scale, whereas Reacher appeals, I think, on an individual scale, because it's not about someone coming and fixing the problems of your whole country. It's about, like Lee said, someone knocking on your door and fixing your specific individual problems. Well, it's interesting how it goes from the national to the individual, because I sort of feel like music also made that transition during those per- during those decades as well. Like, like you know, Lee, you sort of grew up in you know this period where not only the Beatles but then punk was was rising in England, and there's like this punk aspect to not obeying the rules and not you know living by other people's boundaries, uh, you know, not respecting authority. Uh, living on your own terms. Do you think, you know, given your ambitions initially as a musician, how much of an effect did you, do you think that had on the character? Uh, I think a lot, yeah. I mean, as a whole, in general, from from those 60s onwards, the whole world became much more connected. And that's something that I remember. One specific memory I had, I mean, I loved the Beatles and I followed all the news and all the stories and gossip and everything. And I remember the story from January 1964. This was just a little bit before the Ed Sullivan Show. A few weeks, they were doing a residency in Paris at the Olympia, staying at the Georges V. And meanwhile, the PR campaign in America was cranking up. And one night after the show, they were back in the hotel room and Brian Epstein gets a phone call from New York, which in 1964 was just impossibly exotic. Somebody's phoning you from New York. So Epstein answers the call and listens for a little while and puts down the phone. And he says, boys, you're number one in America. And to me, that was such a pregnant phrase. It, first of all, symbolized the way that the world was connecting, uh, that we were all becoming the same culture. And secondly, as a personal ambition, I just wanted to hear that. And all those years later, when I did get my first number one in America, my, uh, it went straight to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. My publisher was a smart enough guy to have remembered what I'd said about this. And he, I was in Chicago on tour and he called me and he said, Lee, you're number one in America. And I just thought that I could die and go to heaven right now. And talk about the link, you know, the links to music, you know, that first number one, that was bad luck and trouble, right? So that was a direct connection to music and music plays a huge part in Reacher when he's wandering the land, when he's stuck somewhere, he can just play music in his head, you know, music is a huge support system for Reacher. Yeah, and, and, you know, Andrew, how about for you, like now... You know, you, you know, Lee had all of these things going on where you could you could see it in the books. Like Jack Reacher was redundant in the military, so you know, just like Lee's experience with television, he's on his own. He has to figure it out. He goes from town. He he, he does his thing. How do you feel you can bring yourself into the Jack Reacher character now that you're starting to write these novels? Well, it's a great question, and I think. I think a lot of the the factors that that help Lee, you know, a lot of the experiences have been similar. Um, When I worked in the telecommunications industry, for example, we had a very similar path because I worked for an organization that uh, in its heyday was magnificent, that invented so many of the technologies that we use today and that have moved the, the industry forward and that have enabled that connected world Lee was talking about. So I was very happy working for a company like that until um, the management, typical same story, management wanted to cut costs, they wanted to get rid of the experienced um, professional people and replace them with with younger, cheaper ones. I never actually got pushed out of the door. I had to make the decision to leave on my own. But um, I certainly remember that, that, that experience of essentially being pushed aside because they didn't appreciate what you were doing. And I think that, you know, is one of the things that informed 
reach his character. And on top of that, we're just very similar people. The same things make us happy, the same things make us sad, the same things make us angry. So I think, you know, all of the things that feed into maintaining Reach's character in the same way, you know, I think they're already there. Plus, don't forget that we, for 25 years, we would, anytime we hung out, we would talk about Reacher in this kind of ridiculous way. We'd talk about him as if he was an imaginary extra brother. We'd be saying, what would Reacher do about this? What would Reacher think about that? And so we've just had this whole period of time, quarter of a century, where we had fun. You know, we were just talking about Reacher would be would just be a great way of kind of communal daydreaming. And then, um, you know, the difference now is that rather than just let those words float off into the ether, what we do now is we just, you know, we 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 capture them and and, and write them down. So it's um, it's really a very natural process. And um, what I'm hoping to do is just really keep going with, you know, sure enough, some maybe slightly newer scenarios because my background I'm, I'm more um, up to date with some of the technological things just because of the jobs I had but um, I hope that you know with a slight updating of some of the scenarios that Reacher faces like we did with the Sentinel you know where he had to deal with cybercrime which was a, you know a complete mystery to him I hope that we can really keep Reacher going just the same as he has been for the for the past 25 years. Yeah, and, and it'll it'll be interesting because it's it's like what you were saying before, the same but different. Like I, you know, I imagine um, you know, this is not every Jack Reacher story, but I imagine a Jack Reacher story is he, someplace new. He sees something bad happening, <laughs> he is determined to solve it, and then you know the puzzle gets unraveled. I'm I'm not I'm oversimplifying, of course. That's a pretty but... good summary. You could work with us <laughs> if you want. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll pitch scenarios to you, but. Uh, uh, how do you, can you veer from that? Is that, or is that like a, a blueprint? I mean, I think the great thing about the Reacher books is that at the beginning, I had no idea what I was doing. And so I just wrote the first one based on instinct. Um, just what I wanted, what I personally wanted to happen. And I, actually, a lot of writers do that, I think. You know, they love reading. They They absolutely live by reading, and yet they are a little dissatisfied with what they're reading. And so they think, you know what, I'm going to write a book that turns out exactly the way I think it should. So that's all I ever did. It was very random, very unstructured, nothing was ever planned. And so that gives Andrew now the liberty to do whatever he wants. You know, Risha could get a job if he wants temporarily. Risha could do anything, go anywhere. And I think what Andrew brings that I didn't have is, a, is really understanding the corporate world in a way that I was never exposed to. He had that period in a corporation where there was a management hierarchy and so on and so forth, which everybody has. You know, whatever your job is, you could be a medical accounts clerk or something like that. And, yet, and your job will include management above you, some of whom are idiots. And that is a source of frustration in your life. And Andrew really understands that very well. And that translates to everything. You could show the military that way. The military is really like a big corporation with a hierarchy, and some of the people above you are idiots. And so that experience can translate directly into practically any aspect of life. And uh, so... I. I I think that also helps Andrew make the secondary characters more complex and more interesting because he's seen how people interact in these massive organizations. And so that I think there are, he's bringing extra strengths to it and what he's bringing is 25 years of perspective as a reader, whereas I was purely the writer and I, I was so close to it, I wasn't really aware of where it was going. He was standing back a bit and he was aware of, of how the series was meandering here and there. And so that he now can use that perception to bring it back to where it should be or whatever he thinks is necessary. But there are no rules. You know, Reacher can do whatever he wants. He could, he could go and be emperor of a foreign country if he wants. We'll just have to see what happens. And I, I like this idea of having no plan. So, and, and, you know, there's always different philosophies and, there's, and of course there's no right way. But 
you know, again, with a thriller or a mystery, there's always points where you're, the, the reader thinks, oh, I've got it now. This must be what's happening or this must be the bad guy. And every author has different ways of, of dealing with that. But it, it seems like with a Jack Reacher novel, no matter what I think, I'm always wrong. <laughs> and, and, and is that something you, you know in advance? Like you figure out, oh, the reader's probably going to think this guy is the bad guy. And I'm just, you know, we're going to make him wrong somehow. You know, really, I am the reader. So for two-thirds of the book, I'm thinking somebody else is going to be the bad guy. And then somehow the logic of the story says, no, it's got to be this other person. And so it evolves as it goes along. And the, the really interesting thing about having no plan is that actually it's not true. You, you do have a plan based on 10,000 mystery or thrillers that you've read before. It's kind of baked into your brain, the basic rhythm and grammar of a thriller. So even though you think you don't have a plan, actually you have this massive database of every other plot you've ever read, every reveal you've ever read, every surprise you've ever been subjected to. You've got all of that. So doing it without a plan is actually not quite right. You're doing it with a kind of 100-year plan that is based on everything that has worked before. Well, I was going to say also a kind of instinct too because, um, you know, we respond to... But reading books just the same as you were describing, you know, you, you, there's, there's part of your brain, you know there's a puzzle there, you know there's a question, you want the answer, you want the solution. So we're used to that, we know what that feels like, we're just looking at it from the other side. And a lot of the, the way that you have to do that is based on instincts, it's based on the fact that, you know, Lee grew up wanting to be a, an entertainer, all I ever wanted to do was be a storyteller, you know, you're just used to it, it's in you somewhere and you, you, you just have to trust your instincts when it comes down to when you reveal things, what you reveal, how you reveal them. And um, yeah, of course, you know, who eventually in a thriller, who's to blame? Who is the bad guy? And, um, you know, that's that's the really fun part of it. It can be hugely fr frustrating if you're three quarters of the way through and the different strands aren't coming together uh, the way you thought they would, but you've got to just embrace that and allow them to come together the way that the story dictates. And um, when you when when they do, it's it's so so satisfying uh, and also it's not so much to do with revealing the bad guy in the last chapter because again there's no plan there's no formula so some of the books it's been pretty obvious who the bad guy is from the first chapter and then the appeal becomes what is Reacher going to do to him and and exactly how is he going to do it that is what propels the narrative you know, so I, I read this quote once, I forgot who said it. This author said, if you're ever confused in the middle of your novel while you're writing it, kill off the main character. <laughs> and of course, you don't, you can't kill off Jack Reacher, but you could kill off the main suspects. I mean, you sort of see it, and I wonder in, in some of the books that maybe you were thinking this, but I'm just, I'm just curious if you ever thought of it that directly, like, oh, I don't know how to untangle here, so I'm just going to kill off this guy. Now I'm forced to untangle. In a way, uh, you know, I've, I'm ruled entirely by instinct, and I can remember a couple of books where there was Reacher, and he usually meets somebody, usually a woman, and they usually are working together in some, to some degree. And I remember a couple of books where she just got shot in the head and, and was gone, you know, halfway through the book or two-thirds of the way through the book, and it, I can't say why, it just, it just happened. And... Uh, to create stakes and poignancy, I suppose. And so, yeah, you know, you can do you can do anything. It's a solo show. It's basically about Reacher. And the people around him are usually nice and we want we want them to survive, but their peril is kind of a proxy for Reacher's peril. Because as you say, the only problem with a long-running series is there is no tension at the beginning. Will Reacher survive? Um, of course he will. We buy into that as a series reader. So you've got to find the tension somewhere else. Andrew, you know, you guys are, are 14 years apart, which, by the way, that's a long... You, you have no other siblings. You're the two siblings. So why did your parents go 14 years without having another kid? <laughs> Oh, we do. We we have two. I, I feel like one of you was a mistake. Were one of you mistakes? <laughs> well, yeah. 
we we do have. Uh, we do have two other siblings, so we're three of us. We were a family of oh, okay. three boys, um, you know, neat and close together at the beginning, all born in the 1950s. And, and so we were a family, two parents, three boys. And then I guess it was, you know, the late menopausal mistake, the miscalculation. They thought they could get away with it. And uh, I remember I was 14 and... and my mother was 41 years old, which back in at that time was considered sure. very old. And she was partly happy about it and partly embarrassed about it and partly worried about how the, we were going to react. You know, I was 14, uh, girlfriends of my own by this point, and how would I react to a baby in the family? Actually, And actually, I loved it. It was great. It was absolutely fabulous. Uh, the experience of having Andrew, and then later on I got a dog, which made, when I had my own kid, I was totally prepared. I knew how to do it. NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. If approved, applications are typically funded the next business day or sooner. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Applications subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Andrew, what you said earlier that you always wanted to be a storyteller. Now, obviously, you were probably in your 20s when Lee started writing these books, but was was he an influence on your desire to be a storyteller? And you yourself have done your own you know, thriller novels un under the name Andrew Grant. How much of an influence has Lee been on you developing your style and, and genre and so on? Well, you know, he's been a huge influence in a number of ways. And, and one of those ways is that we we both feel really that growing, because we grew up kind of independently because, you know, by the time I was coming into my own, he'd already left home. So um, we both, when we talk about it, we realize we both had the same experience of feeling like complete outsiders. You know, we felt, you know, growing up in that house with other people who were so dissimilar to us in every way, different outlooks, different attitudes, different values. It felt like either you were a changeling at the hospital or you were, you know, I think it's one reason why I always loved spy fiction, for example, because I really felt like I was having to pretend to be somebody different to fit into this alien world, just like you would if you were a spy. So we have that, that shared uh, feeling that she had experienced growing up. Um, but for me, it was easier because I could see that he had escaped, you know, when he was working in TV, for example. He had this fabulous, glamorous job in TV. So, you know, struggling through, I could feel, well, just keep going because there are opportunities. There's, there's hope at the end of this. There's light at the end of the tunnel. So that really helped. You know, I could get away. I could go visit him. We would have fun hanging. I could hang out with somebody who was like me for the first time in my life as opposed to people who not only were unlike me, but, you know, you know, violently disapproved of everything that I thought or did. So it was great to get up to, to have that. And then as, as time went on, you know, I think the storytelling part, some of that was probably, it was, you know, it's a form of performance. You know, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people who wind up writing in a way they would have liked to have performed either as a musician or an actor or something like that but you don't have the talent for that so you have to find a different outlet and then if you're telling stories all the time 
you're creating alternative worlds that you can live in rather than the you know the boring one that that is reality so i'm sure that that is another common common thread for us but then later it was interesting because the reason i decided you know i'd been in i'd done some i had my own theater company i'd, I'd worked in theater i'd had to leave that and work in the corporate world just for financial reasons and then the 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 sort of the creative outlet I, I, for me, I, enjoy, I just had to read more because I wasn't in a position to participate in or even really go watch plays in the theatre anymore. So I realised that I'd kind of deviate, just, just somehow started loving crime fiction, spy fiction, action adventure books, all of those kind of things. It wasn't a conscious choice. Oh, let's focus on these books. It just happened. And then one, I remember the, the critical thing, the catalyst was one day, I was reading a book that really started out as the perfect thriller, the kind of book where you won't get off the bus or the train because you're too engrossed in the story. You'll stay up all night reading it and therefore miss work the next day. It was one of those books that just grabbed you and would not let go until the end. The end was terrible. It was the worst ending of any book I'd ever encountered. And I remember thinking, well, why did the author do that? He'd set up all of these fascinating scenarios and didn't take advantage of any of them. He had these characters that, you know, this character could have done this thing, that character could have done that thing. Why didn't he follow through on that? And what that did was it became an itch that I had to scratch. I had to figure out, I had to find out could I do this? Could I be a writer? And so I looked at what Lee had already achieved. And of course, he was, he was, you know, hugely successful, which told me, A, you know, it's possible. But then the kind of devil on your other shoulder is saying, yeah, but the odds of one brother making it are remote. The odds of two are infinitesimal. But somebody said to me, the two saddest words in the English language are what if. And I didn't want to get to the end of a kind of, you know, successful but mediocre career in, in, in an, you know, an ordinary field and then look back and think, yeah, but what if I had tried to be a writer? So I thought, I've got to try. I've got to see if it works. And at that point, it was very useful to have Lee's insight because he could tell me how the game was played. You know, you finish the book, you try to get an agent, the agent tries to get you a deal. Here are some things it's a good idea to do. Here are some things that you really better not do. That was very helpful. But then, in it, like in any industry, you know, in publishing, there's a lot of resistance to anything that feels like nepotism, you know. So the last thing I wanted was to, have, to, to appear to be riding on his coattails. I wanted, I was absolutely determined that I was going to make it on my own. So I used a different name, I used a different agent, I went to a different publisher. Everything in the beginning was designed to be as separate as possible. Even to the point where when I was writing, I would try, I, I would find that my style naturally was very similar to his and I deliberately had to change it because I didn't want it to sound I didn't want my books to sound like Lee Child knockoffs I wanted them to have their own distinctive voice so I had to work for many years on sounding different so then of course it was quite an irony when the, the tables turned and all of a sudden I had to try very hard to sound exactly like him that was you know that was a weird weird shift um so I think that the, you know, a combination of all of those things led to, um, you know, that, that sort of being diverted for a period of time and then, then coming together where we are now. And, and Lee, what did you think of Andrew's first attempts at, uh, uh, at writing? What advice did you give him on the writing side? I, I had learned that you, the only advice you can ever give another writer is ignore my advice. Because in order to work, a book has got to have a beating heart of its own. It's got to be a vivid, vital creation. And the only way you can do that is if it is the product of one person's imagination and nothing else. Even if you're certain that you're doing it wrong or that nobody else does it that way, if that's how you want to do it, that's how you should do it. So basically, I said to him, look, in detail, ignore my advice. But... Uh, as he said, you know, the rules of the game, I could give him shortcuts about what scenarios to avoid, mainly to do with relationships with publishers and so on. You know, this is a business where you've got to fit in to a certain extent so that most of my advice was practical rather than literary. 
And I loved what he did. I loved his, he, he wrote nine thrillers before he, he joined me on the Reacher Project. And they're all good. They're all great. And I, I was actually very reluctant to ask him to take over Reacher because it meant that I would not see any more of his own stuff, which I had actually been loving. So it was a double-edged sword for me. It's great that Reacher continues in the world. But I feel like as a reader, I've lost a couple of things that I really wanted to continue. Did you consider the James Patterson approach of almost like uh, uh, I don't want to I don't want to use the word factory, but you know, bringing on others to with with different ideas to kind of take the brand further? It, I mean, it was a possibility, and I like James Patterson. You know, I got no problem with him at all. He's a he's a really nice guy, and what he runs essentially is a bit like a kind of Renaissance atelier. You know, like Rembrandt used to do. Rembrandt would walk around and he would paint the hard bits, you know, he would do the faces or the hands or whatever. And a couple of other guys would do the backgrounds. Um, so Patterson is, that's an ancient tradition and there's, there's nothing ignoble about it. Uh, mm -hmm. But I didn't want to do that partly because Patterson works incredibly hard. And uh, of course the sub agenda here is that I wanted to retire. Uh, you know, and what I say to people in America, especially, they don't really understand that desire. I say, never forget, I'm from Europe. I have no work ethic. And so <laughs> my idea was to, we would do these four, these four books and, and the one that's coming out now, The Secret, is the last of the four as a transitional period. And then I'm out of it. I'm going to be lying on my sofa reading other people's books. So that the idea of doing a Patterson type thing, which requires, you know, dozens of projects running all at once and input for hours every day, that was not in my plan. Well, do you have a plan? Like, are, like when you say retire, do you, do you plan on doing nothing? Yeah, I mean, I've done so much traveling uh, as part of this job. Uh, I've been all over the world. And so the, the, the usual thing is you, you retire and travel. It's the other way around for me. I retire and I don't travel. And so I just want to be able to read because at the, every writer is fundamentally a reader hundreds of times more than he's a writer. And so the only thing that I have ever resented about being a writer is all those hours that it takes up where you're not reading something else. And so I'm, I'm going to try and catch up now in, in the years ahead. I've got a very comfortable sofa. I spend a, most of the day horizontal with a book propped up on my chest, and I'm just in heaven that way. Well, if you guys were to recommend one book to, a, let's say there's someone who wants to be a writer, someone who wants to be a thriller writer, what's one book you would recommend? Obviously, not one that you've written. I think it's the, a cliche question again. I'm ashamed, but there it is. Well, I, I'm going to nominate the one that actually did that for me, which was that. Uh, I, I was on vacation in Mexico uh, in the 1980s, flying back through Miami. And at the Miami airport, I, I needed a book, so I grabbed a book by a guy called John D. McDonald. Never heard mm. of him before. And it was called The Lonely Silver Rain. And there was something about that book that it was wonderful entertainment. It's the Travis McGee series, which is a fabulous series, one of the best ever. Uh, but there was something about it that not only on the surface level of a great, great story, it was a bit like a blueprint. I could almost hear McDonald telling me, this is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it now. This is what it's going to mean in a few pages. It was like a blueprint. And mm -hmm. so that to me was the book, The Lonely Silver Rain by John D. McDonald. That's what showed me how to do it. Last question I've always been curious about you don't really see a lot of crossovers in these series. Like, have you ever considered, like, okay, you know James Patterson calling up and saying, listen, let's have Alex Cross and, and Jack Reacher team up on, on a case? I've, I've entertained that idea with loads of people. You know, you sit around and you, you kid around about it. I mean, Harry Bosch. Uh, Michael is a good friend of mine, and it, it would be hilarious to do that. But uh, you, you immediately 
sort of blunder head on into the reality of contracts and copyright and, you know, he, mm. Harry Bosch's TV deal versus Jack Reach's TV deal, plus we're with different publishers and all that kind of thing. It just becomes too complicated. It occasionally crops up when we do short stories for, um, you know, whatever anthology is asking for one. That attracts less attention. It's kind of under the radar a little bit. And so there have been crossovers like that. I, I did one with uh, Joseph Finder, where our characters were together for a while. I did one with Kathy Reichs, where Jack Reacher and Temperance Brennan team up to, to solve a problem. Uh, but only in short stories where you can kind of get away with it. That's uh, it's so interesting. I never, I never, um, I never knew that it happened. So that's good. I'll have to check those out. Well, you guys, you know, Lee Child, Andrew Child, author of the upcoming book, The Secret. Uh, I read it. I loved it. it. The hard thing with interviewing authors of novels is that it's hard to talk about the book because everything is kind of a reveal, you know, after the first chapter. But it's been so fascinating hearing your stories and your approach and, and listening to you guys interact. So I'm, I'm so thankful you came on the podcast. I really love The Secret, and obviously it's going to do do great. And I wish you luck with, with you know, this this merger of talents and ambitions, you know, as you go forward. And, and Lee, good luck with your retirement. I, I doubt you'll be able to do it, but uh, we'll, we'll see. Thank you. And and then next book, don't forget to come back on. I'm going to be an avid reader of that one as well. So I'm looking forward to it. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.